Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. This is the word of God, for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. We're grateful to you, Joe Rogers, for reading our lesson this morning on the third Sunday of Advent and to all of you who are streaming with us. Uh, also, our thanks to Laura Brantley for leading us to the throne of grace in prayer. Uh, to Jeff and Caitlin Ricotta for lighting the third candle today and to Mason and all of our worship leaders and production staff who make our streaming possible. We're grateful to them and we're especially grateful to you for tuning in and connecting with us in worship this morning. If you're just tuning in today during Advent for the first time, we're continuing a series that we started two weeks ago called The Family Tree. We continue with another reading, a second reading from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be following Luke now through the rest of this series through the end of December. We've been thinking together for a few weeks about the genealogy of Jesus, which by the way is mentioned in two of the four Gospel accounts. We know to date that Matthew highlights Joseph's side of the family, while the Gospel of Luke accounts more from Mary's side of the family. And last week, we read the text that is well known to many of us called the Annunciation, which is essentially Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she, though a virgin, will conceive and bear a child who will inherit the throne of David, whose kingdom will know no end. It's interesting to me that actually in Luke, Luke has two birth announcements in chapter 1, one of which is improbable, the child to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the other is impossible, the child to Mary. Of course, we know that the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus is ultimately traced not just to Abraham nor even only to Adam, but to the Holy Spirit of God. In Gabriel's message to Mary, he reveals to her that her relative Elizabeth is also expecting, though she is way past childbearing age. Now, apparently, unlike today, Gabriel seems unaware of the HIPAA laws, and so he shares with Mary another condition of her great aunt. And so, Mary, in response to the angel, journeys to Judea to visit this aging relative who is now reportedly in her third trimester. And this scene in Luke, exclusive, peculiar to Luke's gospel, is referred to by teachers and scholars as the visitation. 
The scene begins with this line in verse 39. And Mary went with haste to Judea. Now the word haste, of course, suggests that the Virgin Mary was in a hurry at this point, and well she was, but that word in Greek means more than rushing. It means diligence. It means a sense of intention, earnestness, enthusiasm, swift obedience, if you will. In other words, at this point, Mary is on a mission. There's a spring in her step. There's an urgency in her gait. She goes to Judea because she wants to verify, she wants to corroborate Gabriel's message to her in the child that Elizabeth is to bear. It's interesting to me that you see the word haste again in regard to the shepherds in the very next chapter in the nativity story. In chapter 2, verse 15, Luke says, when the shepherds heard the angel's message, they made haste. In other words, they hightailed it to Bethlehem to see what the Lord had made known to them. Because once you have heard the gospel, you've got to do something about it. Once you have heard the good news, once you have heard the angel's song, you've got to go and see. And they made haste. Now, I've noticed that we have a tendency these days, or maybe this is just me, maybe this is just confessional, but we have the tendency this, these days to procrastinate, especially spiritual things, in order to attend to only temporal matters. I think it was Mark Twain who said, never put off until tomorrow what may be done day after tomorrow just as well. But there are some things that just won't wait. I was reading the other day about the Bethlehem star that is to appear this Wednesday night between December 16th and December 25th, Saturn and Jupiter will appear as one creating what may have been seen on that first Christmas night. I was sharing it with somebody the other day and they said, well, I'm working nights and so I'm gonna be very busy and I may have to wait until the Bethlehem star comes next time. And I said to them, well, the last time the star appeared was in 1226. So um, yeah, you might wanna try to catch it this time. We're told that it will be seen again, perhaps in the year 2080. And so there are some things that if you don't do it now, you're gonna miss. Charles Hummel wrote a book several years ago, some of you remember the book, called The Tyranny of the Urgent. This book became an instant business classic, but there's something even more deeply spiritual about it as well. The thesis of the book, says Hummel, is this. The greatest danger in the world is when we allow the urgent to crowd out the essential. That's the tyranny of the urgent. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said on it these words, I'm not a procrastinator, I'm just extremely productive at unimportant things. And it struck me as how true of our 21st century. In the visitation scene that Joe read for us, these two families 
these two women, these two generations, these two daughters of Aaron are intertwined. They are linked, bound together in an earnest expectancy. And one of the things that I love so much about Mary is that she knows when to make haste and when to be still. There's evidence in Luke's gospel that Mary was a contemplative. She knew how to ponder. Now, there's a word you don't hear much anymore these days. She knew how to ponder. You see that in the scripture. You see it not only in Mary's prenatal phase, but in her postnatal phase. In fact, in the very next chapter in the birth story, in chapter 2 that Luke tells, the whole scene concludes with this line, and Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Well, what, what things? Caesar's decree, the new tax law, the trek to Bethlehem, the no vacancy, the labor pains, the first cries, the manger, the shepherds. And Mary pondered all these things in her heart. It's an interesting word in Greek. The word for ponder is symbolo. I've put it there in the slide for you to see, symbolo, which you can see if you look carefully, the root of our word symbol. Symbols are signs and images that embody deep meaning, like bread and wine, like water in a bowl and the laying on of hands, like a cross, like a chrismon tree, like a poinsettia. A symbol is an image that carries deep meaning, symbolo. You see that word again pondered in chapter 2, verse 51. You remember this story where the boy Jesus got separated from his family in Jerusalem. And the caravan, the family was halfway back to Nazareth when someone discovered that the 12-year-old boy was missing. They did a U-turn, they beat it back to the city, and they found Jesus in the temple listening to the elders and asking questions. And it was Mary who cross-examined the boy. She was fit to be tied. She said, child, you had us worried sick. What were you thinking? And Jesus said, didn't you know that I'd be here in my father's house? It's an interesting response for a 12-year-old. I think Jesus was either extremely mature for his age or he just knew how to avoid a good whipping. But the last line in that story says, and Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. There it is again, symbolo. What that word literally means in the Greek language is to put two and two together. It means to mull things over. It means to examine attentively. And that's what Mary and Elizabeth were doing in the visit. Revelation is not just information. Revelation is information plus contemplation. 
You have to ponder it. That's why faith never happens in a hurry. That's why sanctification doesn't happen in a rush. It's not an equation, it's a process. You have to ponder. Educator and philosopher John Dewey said it like this. We don't actually learn from experience. We learn by reflecting on experience. With that said, I think it's true to say that we cannot live merely on sound bites, on tweets and Snapchats and Instagrams and breaking news. You have to learn to ponder. Mary knew the difference between haste and contemplation. Richard Foster said it like this, the great Quaker theologian, when we ponder, we create the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to construct an inner sanctuary in our hearts. And that's what these two women were doing in Judea. Mary and Elizabeth together enjoyed this pregnant pause through which they pondered the grace that was growing within them. Now, my favorite part of the story is where Mary enters the house, and as soon as she crosses the threshold and says, anybody home? Elizabeth feels a kick in her tummy. In fact, the fetus does a cartwheel, a somersault. Now, in old days, in ancient days, such prenatal activity was thought to be a sign of things to come. In fact, it was for Rachel. You remember Rachel in Genesis 25? Rachel's husband, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, prayed to God for a child, for a son, and God answered the prayer. In fact, God overdid it. He gave them a double blessing, twins, and Rachel had a tough time. It was a high-risk pregnancy, and in fact, the whole nine months, the two boys jostled in her womb, kicking and shoving and grabbing to the point that Rachel said, and I quote her in Genesis 25, if this is how it's going to be, I don't know if I can live through it. Now, usually mothers don't say that until the babies become teenagers, but she said it while they were still in the womb. It started in the womb. Esau and Jacob, of course, would forever struggle, or at least until they met as adults at the Jabbok River. And God would tell Rachel, even in the prenatal phase, these two will become two nations. They'll be divided. And then listen to what the text says. God says, the elder will serve the younger. Say what? The elder will serve the younger. Well, if you know anything about Palestinian culture, that's not the way it works. It's the younger who serves the older. It's the least who serves the greatest. But this is a reversal. Things are different for this kingdom. God's ways are not our ways. And you see it even in the womb. In fact, you see this theme after Jesus' birth in ministry. On the last night of his life, you see this same theme 
at the table at the Last Supper in Matthew 22, where Jesus talking to his friends who are also jostling for power and position, he says these words, politicians, kings, and rulers love to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles but it is not to be so among you. Instead, the greatest among you is to be like the youngest. The senior is to be like the junior. And the one who rules is to be like the one who serves. I have come among you as a servant. And that's our lineage. That's our genealogy. That's our spiritual family tree. It's a reversal. It's countercultural. So it was for Jacob and Esau. So it was for Joseph and his brothers. So it was for Moses and Aaron. So it was for the prodigal son and the elder boy. So it was for the publican and the Pharisee. It's a reversal. And so it is for Elizabeth and Mary, as it will be for John and Jesus. The older will serve the younger and will even prepare the way for his rule. Indeed, 30 years after birth, Elizabeth's son will baptize Mary's son in the Jordan, and John will say words that every disciple must say, I must decrease while he increases. By the way, that kick in Elizabeth's tummy was more than a kick. It was a profession of faith. It was a leap of joy. It was a testimony of the Spirit. It was a confirmation of a promise as early as Gabriel's message to Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 15, your, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son who will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And that's worth pondering. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, joy. It's been said, and I agree, that joy is the infallible proof of the presence of Christ. And John experienced it even in the womb. We've experienced it this morning in our streaming by lighting the joy candle. You may have noticed that the color of this third candle is different from the others. The others are purple, which is symbolic of repentance. But the joy candle is pink, which is the color of joy. And when we light it, just the thought of his coming, just the thought of his kingdom brings joy. It's no accident that Luke bookends his narrative with joy. At the very beginning, the angel says to shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. And at the conclusion, after resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus blesses his friends, is carried up into heaven, and the next to last verse in the whole account says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great 
joy. And it all started with a kick. And that's worth pondering. Last word. I've been thinking a lot about my family lineage in this series, for which I'm grateful. I don't know if this is true for you or not, but the season of Advent and Christmas has a way of working my memory over time. My father was born in 1929 in the Great Depression. His closest sibling in age at the time of my father's birth was 19. He had a 19-year-old brother and a 21-year-old sister. He said it was like having four parents. His father was 49 when my dad was born. His mother was 46. Talk about a high risk. My grandmother used to say, we thought your dad was a tumor. And I said, yeah, I thought that a time or two myself. But even the doctor, she said, thought he was a tumor at first. But it wasn't long, she said, before the tumor began to grow. And then it developed a heartbeat. And then I felt the tumor kicking. (laughs) And nine months later, in my 47th year, she said, on March the 1st, 1929, we named the tumor (laughs) Wallace, which means stranger. And that little stranger grew up to become a messenger of the gospel. Have you ever noticed how life is just chocked full of unexpected fulfillment? And just the thought of that story brings me joy. That's, that's my lineage. I'm the son of a tumor. And if God can bring such joy out of high risk, improbability, impossibility, what on earth do you suppose that God can impossibly do with you? The answer to that question is worth pondering. In Jesus' name.